Thank you, Dee Dee. Uh, good morning. As Dee said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Grateful to be with you all this morning. And once again, grateful for all this technology that enables us to continue to gather in this season. Obviously, this upcoming week is a big week for our country, uh, for our city. I uh, do hope that you are praying along with us. If you haven't seen it already, please go by our website and check out our prayer guide as we, as we lead in prayer into this season uh, as we trust God and ask for him to move uh, and as we pray for our city and our country. This morning we're continuing in our sermon series entitled Answering Jesus. It's a series wherein we've been looking at some of the more provocative questions that Jesus asked during his time on earth. And the question that we'll be looking at this morning is, what shall a man give in return for his soul? Or maybe stated a little more simply, what would you be willing to pay in exchange for a meaningful life? I want to invite you now, wherever you're at, as is our custom, to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be reading verses 24 to 26. This is God's Word. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is God's word. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. For your word, we believe your word is true. We ask that you would speak to us now this morning through your word, that you would allow me, your servant, to get out of your way so that you can speak clearly to our hearts, to our minds, and that you would change our wills. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Many of us, I'm, I'm sure, grew up on the Disney classic, Alice in Wonderland, the movie that placed the phrase off with his head inside the minds of thousands of little children. This movie is based on a series of books written by Lewis Carroll, and if you've ever gotten the chance to dive into these books, you will be amazed at how Walt Disney was able to make a, such a cute and playful children's movie out of such a dark and complex story. In the second book, Through the Looking Glass, one of the fascinating complexities that, that Carol conjures up is he creates a world that is a mirror image of the real world, a world where everything is inside out and upside down. A world in which in order to accomplish something, you have to do the opposite. For example, if you want to move towards something, you must move away from it. 
British theologian N.T. Wright points out how Carol's mirror world sounds a lot like the way Jesus instructs his followers to live, the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom is inside out, it's upside down, and just like Carol's mirror world, it often demands that we do the opposite of what we think is right or even makes sense. Our text this morning is a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And as you will soon see, to do so requires us to do the exact opposite of what we think is right or even makes sense. I have two points this morning. First, the path to follow Jesus, and second, the power to do it. The path to follow Jesus and the power to do it. Let's begin. Having been in vocational ministry for 15 years now, I've witnessed a multitude of different strategies for evangelism, strategies for encouraging others to trust in Jesus and follow him. And I have to admit that the strategy that Jesus uses here in verses 24 and 25 is profoundly different than anything that I've ever witnessed or ever practiced over the past 15 years. You see, the evangelism that I'm familiar with focuses on the idea that, that following Jesus will make your life better. The idea is to convince the other person that following Jesus will make you happier, more comfortable, that your life will be more fulfilling and more, more satisfying. And the rationale behind this method is that Jesus suffered so that you don't have to. His cross for my crown. And yet what Jesus says here to his disciples doesn't sound anything like that. Instead he says, if you follow me, you won't get happiness or comfort, but rather a cross. My cross and then your cross. To put it more plainly, Jesus is saying that the path to follow me is a pathway filled with pain and suffering. A church don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not encouraging this as a new strategy for evangelism. However, we do need to recognize here, we need to embrace that there is no pathway on which to follow Jesus that doesn't include suffering. And therefore, if you signed up for something else, you have been misled. Now, the good news for those of you who have been misled is that you're not alone. You see, this text is written because the disciples themselves were confused about this. You see, this text is written right after a very significant exchange between Peter and Jesus. Peter, the self-proclaimed leader of the disciples, has, has just confessed for the first time ever that Jesus is the Christ. Meaning that Jesus was this long-awaited-for Savior King that the Jewish prophets had been talking about for thousands of years. The one who has come to rescue God's people. However, immediately following this confession of Peter's, Jesus begins to unpack for Peter and the rest of the disciples what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the, the long-awaited Savior King. Verse 21, from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed 
on the third day be raised. And what our text says is that Peter took major issue with these comments. Verse 22, upon hearing this, Peter took Jesus aside and he rebuked him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now what's going on here? What's, Jesus, what's Peter up to? Well, Peter knows full well what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to identify with one's master. And therefore, a disciple should rightly expect a similar fate to his or her master. And when Peter said, Jesus, you're the Christ, in his mind, this meant that Jesus was about to take over. He was about to overthrow the oppressive Roman leaders and claim the throne. And therefore, as a disciple of Jesus, this meant Peter was about to have it made in the shade. Wealth, status, power, they were all about to belong to Jesus and therefore, in turn, belong to Peter. And so you can see why when Jesus begins to talk about suffering and death, Peter felt the need to to educate Jesus on what a real Messiah looks like. That won't happen to you, JC. You're the Christ. And yet here, Peter gets the harshest rebuke from Jesus in all the scriptures for this comment. Jesus literally says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why so harsh in this moment? Well, the answer is because Jesus knows that there is nothing more contrary to his cause than a disciple who wants to follow him but is unwilling to suffer. Verse 24 is clear, to follow Jesus is to take up our cross. What does it even mean to take up one's cross? What what kind of suffering does following Jesus truly entail? It's an important question, right, for those of us who want to be followers of his. Now, don't forget that for many of Jesus' early disciples, this phrase was not metaphorical. By choosing to follow Jesus, they literally lost their lives. And church, let us not brush right by that reality. I remember years ago being at a missions conference and hearing one of the speakers share how our denomination has yet to have one of its missionaries martyred. And this speaker wasn't particularly proud of that statistic. I think his comment begs the question, are we, are you willing to lay down your very life for the sake of following Jesus? If I'm honest, I don't know if I am, but I do know that is the level of commitment that King Jesus is calling us to. Now, that being said, I think it's safe to assume that most of us will not be called to lay down our physical lives for the sake of following Jesus. However, that doesn't mean this text does not apply to us because the text is clear. All followers of Christ are called to take up their cross. Therefore, there must be a way to take up our cross that that doesn't involve physical death. And the answer is found in in verse 24. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, many commentators argue, and I, I would agree based on the structure of the text, that Jesus is not giving us two separate commands here. 
But much like in, in the poetry of the Psalms, Jesus is giving color to his first statement with his second. He's saying that the way to take up one's cross is to deny oneself. Which makes sense because self-denial really is a, a death of sorts, isn't it? To deny self is to put to death our desires. It's, it's, to, it's to reject that which we ultimately believe will make us happy. How do we do that? How do we practically speaking deny ourselves? You see, all of us has something in our lives that we believe is essential, something on which we depend, something that we believe we cannot experience joy without. For some of us, that thing is approval. We believe that we won't matter unless people like us. For some of us, that thing is comfort. We believe we cannot be happy, truly happy, unless we have certain luxuries, certain comforts. For some of us, that thing is control. We believe we can't have a fulfilling life unless we have mastery over our lives in certain areas. For some of us, that thing is power. We believe that we can't be truly satisfied unless we achieve some level of success or, or status. You see, to live for self is to live for these things, to live for the things that you believe will save you, the things that will make your life meaningful and joyful and, and worth living. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to dismiss, to ignore, to, to refuse to live for these functional saviors. These things that you deep down believe are your only source of life. We have to reject them and instead live for him. So you see, if, if your functional savior is your career, the thing that you believe will ultimately satisfy to deny self and take up cross is to not allow your career to be the number one priority in your life. It means to behave in the workplace in a way that would honor Jesus and yet maybe profoundly hinder you from that promotion. If your functional savior is the security or comfort that, that comes from money, to deny yourself and take up your cross is to give away more than you think is wise. To give in such a way so that your comforts are limited. If your functional savior is, is the approval of others to deny yourself and, and to take up your crosses to refuse to enter into that gossip with your classmates or to stand up for the person who's being picked on on the playground, even if it might cost you some friends. You get the picture, as, as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Christ is calling us to die to everything that we have lived for all our life. So let me summarize this evangelistic pitch that, that Jesus has just made. He says, the way to be my disciple is to leave behind everything that you believe will make me happy and instead follow me down the path of, of pain and suffering. This is the worst marketing pitch I have ever heard. You want to know something crazy? Of the 12 disciples who heard this pitch, 11 of them actually bought it, and 10 of them ended up following Jesus to their own deaths. How is that possible? Brings us to our second point, the power to follow. 
What is it that motivated the disciples and in turn might motivate us to do something so counterintuitive as to deny ourselves and to take up our cross? The answer is found in the, the final two verses of our text. It's here that we find Jesus' rationale for living such an upside-down, inside-out kind of life. Look again with me at verse 25. It says, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying if you live for these things that you believe will save you, money, power, comfort, approval. The truth is, according to Jesus, they will ultimately kill you. But if you run away from those things that you think will save you, you will live. Sounds just like Carol's mirror world, doesn't it? If we move towards fulfillment in life on the world's terms, Jesus says you find misery. But if you move away from fulfillment, in life, you will find it. And so the big question for you and for me from this text is, is rather simple. Do we believe this? Do we trust that Jesus actually knows what he's talking about? The disciples ultimately did, and as a result, most of them died gruesome deaths. But were they right? I love how instead of giving us some hyper-intellectual argument for why he's right, Jesus instead leaves the disciples and us with two questions to ponder. First, Jesus asks, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now, we don't like this question at all because we want to have our cake and eat it too. That's the American way, right? We want to gain the world and keep our soul. Or maybe said more pointedly, we want to be able to follow Jesus and live the American dream. But Jesus says it's either one or the other. We can either live for our functional saviors and lose our soul, or we can lay down those saviors and live for him. But you can't keep your soul and gain the world. You can't do both. And once that sets in, we're now ready for Jesus' big question of the day. What shall a man give in return for his soul? This is an accounting question. Jesus is, is asking us to look at the scale in front of us and make a choice. On one side, we have our, our functional saviors, money, pleasure, status, approval. And on the other side is our soul. The things that you've always thought will make you happy on this side and according to Jesus, a truly meaningful life on the other. And the question is, which is more valuable to you? Which, which holds more weight in your life? When we take a step back and, and we digest Jesus' logic, it's a no-brainer. But the reality is, in our day-to-day -day lives, it's much harder to make the right choice. The reason why is because the things on this side... Approval, money, power, they do in fact bring some level of satisfaction. We know this to be true. Getting a promotion, buying a new car, having a thousand followers on social media, all these things feel good. And yet if we're honest, our experience confirms that Jesus is right. Because we've lived for approval. And every time we get a like on Instagram, it doesn't actually make us happy. It just makes us want another one that much more. 
we've lived for success. And, and when we get that great score on the test or we win the game or get the promotion, the satisfaction wears off so fast. And the next test or the next game or promotion is before us. We've lived for comfort. We've tasted it. And yet the media keeps reminding us that, that true comfort is found when we live in this house or we drive this car or drink this drink or, or go on this vacation. We've all gained the world at times at the expense of our souls and we realized it wasn't that good after all. Are you beginning to grasp the essence of, of Jesus' argument here? He's saying to follow me is to suffer, but ultimately it is to avoid even greater suffering. I hope this metaphor is not too trivial, but the Christian life is kind of like a flu shot, isn't it? We embrace some level of suffering knowing that we will ultimately avoid even greater suffering, even death. To not live for the things of this world, for our functional Savior, is to suffer. It will hurt. But Jesus is not inviting us to do this because he's sadistic. But the reason he's inviting us to this life of suffering is because he loves us. And he longs for us to experience the true joy and satisfaction that comes from following him. Do you believe that? Church, that is what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, is to believe that we cannot save ourselves, that meaning is not found inside of us, but ultimately and absolutely in Christ. But the charge of Jesus here is not to believe this once and for all. Jesus is inviting us to believe it more and more each day. You see, all our sin, every time we live for ourselves, every time we look to our functional saviors and instead of God, we are failing to believe this. We are failing to believe that only in Jesus is full and meaningful life. And it's because of this that Jesus in, is inviting us here to grow in maturity by, by believing this more and more, to, to repent and believe, to put to death our functional saviors and follow him over and over and over again. Church, that's my hope and prayer for myself and for each and every one of you. I want to conclude with one final argument for this upside down, inside out, winning through losing way of living. Shortly after I graduated from college, a friend of mine convinced me to invest some money with him in this hedge fund that he was now a part of friend of mine that I might add who made a perfect score on the SAT in high school and, and graduated top of his class at MIT. My friend told me there's no way that we can lose. Well, guess what? We lost and the hedge fund went under and I now know that that was a super risky investment. It was risky because my friend had no real way of knowing if it was going to work out. It was his best guess. Church, to live the way that Jesus is calling us to live is super risky. It requires that we refuse to invest in that which the world declares are proven pathways to a joyful and meaningful life. But what if Jesus is wrong? And yet the good news for you and for me is that this way of living is not Jesus' best guess. Jesus is not inviting us on some crazy entrepreneurial journey, hoping that against all odds it might work out. Now, Jesus has already walked this path before us. 
His whole life was self-denial. He chose to reject all the things that the world said will make you happy. Instead, lived a life of pain and suffering and even death on a cross. And because he's been there and done that, he and he alone can testify to the fact that it works. That if we lose our life for his sake, that we will, in fact, find it. So I ask you again, what are you willing to give in return for your soul? Imagine Jesus turning to the Father and asking that very same question. Father, what would you give for their souls? The Father's response, I give anything. Church, that's what he did. As one commentator says, God emptied heaven of its most prized possession. He spent the family fortune. He gave his one and only son all for your soul so that we might have life. Church, may that reality be the thing that motivates you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and to follow him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you gave it all for us. That you were willing to pay an incredibly high price for our souls. Father, we confess that the lure of this world is real. It's seductive. It's powerful. We're constantly being bombarded with ways to find happiness and meaning in this life, ways that are not you, God. But King Jesus, you've invited us to this pathway of pain and suffering that you promise ultimately will produce joy and meaning in a full life. Father, give us the courage to follow your son, Jesus, to trust that he does know what he's talking about, that in him is true life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This time I want to invite you to stand. Before we sing our final song, we're going to confess our faith together as we have been doing here at Christ Central for quite some time. We'll be using the Apostles' Creed. And so, church, I invite you to confess your faith with me. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.